Over the last several weeks, I've been fielding questions from reporters, the media, friends and family about the situation in the Ukraine with Russia, which I know we're all exhausted about hearing about, but specifically as it relates to my business, everyone's curious about why there's no cyber war. Not as if they want it, but simply the whole buildup toward this and the expectation that this was going to be an incredible diehard-like movie scenario is confounding everyone. And I wanted to address this in a short but very directed uh, podcast on why I think the perception of what has not started perhaps is wrong and perhaps what has happened slightly uh, in a different way is possibly even worse. And this isn't necessarily meant to be a doom and gloom episode, but it is about reality and what we're facing here. So I'm going to break this up into essentially four components. The first is, why hasn't it started? The main question I'm getting. Two, how does cyber militia and the hacktivist contingent play into this? What is their role as it relates to the greater situation? And what will happen if Russia disconnects from the global internet? And then lastly, what we can expect in the months and years to come. So the first question really, why isn't it started? It's a very good question because you're right. There's a million things that probably we thought would happen. We all saw what happened in 2015 where something was deployed into the Ukraine, ironically, even the same place. And it actually spread out and moved beyond the political borders of the Ukraine, even got into the U.S. and other places, disrupting a lot of businesses, cost close to $10 billion of damage something that I think we all were very worried would happen again here and very well could still, by the way. Um, that was called NotPetya, uh, and it really facilitated what we call a wormable event, which basically means that it started somewhere, probably with the intention to disrupt the specific location that was in, but then it moved out beyond those borders into other countries using um, island hopping tactics, which is you know a fancy way of suggesting that it used the supply chain or third-party partnerships to move through the ecosystems that are all connected now. Unfortunately, unfortunately, that is the world we live in. Everything is connected. And uh, while that does provide an immense amount of efficiency, it does uh, introduce a new vector of attack for adversaries. So in some ways, that exact scenario hasn't necessarily happened. There have been things that have shown up that look like attempts by Russians or others to disrupt in some ways, like wiper malware which is essentially something that just destroys what it gets on. It, it erases files and uh, really has no other purpose other than that. It doesn't do anything extortive. It's not a financially benefiting tool to the, to the operator. But what's interesting that is being forgotten is that cyber events are typically something that are found out in a post-mortem state. What I mean by that is you don't always see them as they're manifesting. There's a lot of research and there's a lot of investigative work that happens after the events happen to sort of describe the crime, almost like a, a literal crime investigator going in and looking at what happened, looking at looking for prints, looking for footsteps, seeing what might have transpired, looking at how maybe the, the, the blood spatter happened, to use a visceral analogy here. And that's very much what is hap happens in, in a lot of these cyber investigations. They're not in real time. So while things may appear to not be happening, they could be, and they're being dismissed as malfunctions. They could, in, in the case of Ukraine specifically, it could be 
just a, attributed to the fact that there's a lot of outages because of everything going on on a physical and kinetic front. So there's a million things that may be happening right under the surface that we're not going to find out until it's actually said and done and there's a thorough investigation. And even then, there's a good chance a lot of that will be destroyed or hidden or erased to avoid and, and hide their tracks. It's something that they are able to do if they have time and, and the latitude to do so. So it is. It, it poses a kind of challenging situation to say, we're going to know it's happening actively. Now that's there, but as it relates to the U.S., and that's kind of the second half of the question is, when and if is there going to be is there ever going to be any kind of attack of, of Russia onto the U.S. or vice versa? Well, that leads me to the second point that I brought up around cyber militia and hacktivists, groups like Anonymous um, that have made um, a lot of noise recently and are, are getting lauded for their efforts to attack back in, in some ways. And while you know I certainly advocate you know very good at well-intentioned, you know, volunteers, people that want to help the situation. I'm also very nervous about the fact that a lot of these actors are working with limited intelligence. They are attacking things or opportunistically finding things that they can get into to disrupt them without really understanding what the ramifications could be if they do actually indeed take these things down. Good example is take a Russian satellite network that may be uh, governmental in nature and have its main purpose for watching for incoming uh, attacks, most concerningly nuclear incoming attacks, you know, anti-ballistic missile technology looking for that type of, of activity. What happens when a opportunistic cyber militia or proxy militia or hacktivist finds access to an environment like that, which is entirely possible, and takes it down? Russia's not going to know the difference between that being someone that is working as an independent or that being a government, uh, either of the U.S. or some NATO nation, and will very much go back on the offensive or ready themselves. And in some capacity, I think we saw something along those lines a couple of weeks ago, which was very alarming. What the reason was is not necessarily clear, but I think that there's every possibility that if they feel they're being threatened or attacked, they're not going to be as focused on figuring out who it is as much as they're going to be fixated on responding. And that is a very concerning situation. So my feelings on the volunteership and the hacktivist groups that are involved in this effort, while I am, you know, have to sit back and appreciate the nature and the spirit in which they're doing it, I worry completely around these types of topics where they're working without a complete deck of cards, so to speak. They don't know all the details um, they're not controlled, they're not directed, they're not focused, they're not coordinated. And without that, you tend to have a lot of, uh, that's exactly how friendly, friendly fire happens in an actual war. You don't quite know what your colleagues are doing in the same field, uh, theater of war, and you very well can end up with a lot of injuries or deaths uh, in, in the same place. So, and by, by friendly fire, and that's very similar to the situation. So that's certainly the beginning of that problem that grows exponentially uh, when this all settles down, because the more a group is left unchecked and un, um, fettered from being able to do these kinds of activities, they're going to, they're not going to simply disband when this war ends. <laughs> if they have a sense of power and ability to do things like this, they're going to want to keep doing it. 
And this is exactly how some of these groups form. They form with a well-intentioned purpose. Maybe it's a righteous agenda. But then when they see success and they are able to um, seem to be above the law and they, they're able to do things without any kind of with impunity, that allows for some extremely bad behavior in the future, whether it's by the original group that forms this or by splinter groups that are able to splinter away and, and run their own agendas that may or may not be along the lines of what the original group intended. Very much what happened with LulSec and Anonymous, which I know all too well. For those of you that haven't heard that, listen to one of my podcasts around um, when LulSec attacks. I think it's episode number four, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, you know, the key thing here is to understand that this is a this is a very dangerous place to be because not only is it a crime to be hacking into other computers, whether it was they're domestic or international, um, the ramifications for these folks that are trying to help may actually be dire in the future when when there's an investigation being done when it's all said and done. So there's a lot there, and so I do believe this is kind of the beginning of a new era and breed of of hackers essentially that feel like they can get away with a lot. And they're above the law, and that's a that's a bad, a bad precedent to set for all kinds of reasons, which dovetails into my next point, which is that there's a lot of talk of Russia walling itself off from the greater internet. In other words, removing itself and essentially emulating what we see in China and North Korea, more like what they call a walled garden. So essentially, they'll have their own ecosystem within the borders of their geo geopolitical environment. And that is indeed possible. It's not easy, but they certainly have been experimenting with it for a number of years. And it does seem like there are some directives that at least have been disclosed that that is their intention to do this. Now, many have been focused on the negativity around that being that the people of Russia will be limited in terms of their ability to get you know, free information. That's absolutely a drawback of this. That's without question a very tragic and um, almost a humanitarian problem there's a greater, more uh, nefarious problem with this, which is that if Russia no longer has a reason to be part of the greater internet, let's call the internet that Europe and the US and the rest of the world uses that is all on the same side, they will have no reason, no compunction to not attack it at, at in full blast, because essentially, if they're not benefiting from it, why would they want to leave it intact? It's not too dissimilar to the SWIFT system that was the banking system they've been um, pulled off of, or at least several banks within Russia have been pulled off of. So there's some, some really concerning things around the geopolitical nature of that action. There may be a punishment intent there, which will indeed have its effects, but then the drawback of it is that they'll learn to adapt, they'll learn to modify their way of life to simply be self-contained, not too distant from the way Iran is or, or China or other places that have been embargoed and, and uh, sanctioned for a long time. And they find ways to exist. They, they, they build their own things. They set up their own infrastructure, albeit not necessarily as robust as what they're on now. But the point here is that they will go after what they no longer are part of if it benefits their enemy. If this is purely, if the internet, the global internet that they are no longer part of is benefiting purely us and their enemies, there is absolutely no reason for them not to attack it. And the way they can attack it, and without getting into the technical details around this, is altering things like the routes of IP addresses. Um, 
think of an IP address as a phone number. If you can make that phone number ring on another phone that leads you down the wrong path, you can create mass amounts of chaos. People can't get to things. Servers can't be reached. Uh, your your phone and your computer services simply can't get to the websites they're intending to get to. Emails can't move. You essentially stifle an entire world by doing that. Now, again, I'm not making light of it or trying to suggest it's an easy thing to do, but with a concerted effort and with the skills that the Russian uh, intelligence services have, it's not something that is beyond the realm of possibility, and it's something that we should be thinking about. Fortunately, and the, the question I usually get in response to that statement is, well, how can we fix it? <laughs> and I wish there was an easy answer. There's um, a lot of retooling necessary, not too dissimilar to what we need to retool with our critical infrastructure here in, in this country. There's a lot of work to be done. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that much of what we rely on are systems built by private companies that need essentially to be paid to fix it. And you can't really blame these companies. They're not going to do it for free. As much as it might be in the best interest of the world, they are a for-profit organization. And to rewrite all of their software to run on modern systems is an expensive undertaking. And then not to mention deploying it out to all these locations that it lives on. And then that's not suggesting that there's other problems like actual hardware with certain kinds of um coding, which is called firmware on it, that is much harder to rewrite and redeploy out in it at, a, at scale. It's not something that can be delivered quite as easily. It requires a lot of on-premises talent to, to transform it uh, to be updated. So there's, there's just an immense amount of work here. Speculation around that runs from, you know, tens of years to 20 or to, to 30 years worth of work to get something up to speed of where it should be today. So there's, there's a lot to think about here, and it's a very complicated, convoluted mess. Um, the other aspect of this that is somewhat tied to that third point is if Russia starts to become extremely clearly divided away in a, in a, even more than they already have, they're going to have a lot of coattailers, as I call it. There, there's going to be the other nation-state actors that find the West to be the adversary that they're going to jump into the fight, they're going to contribute. If they're not already, to be honest, I think that um, I use somewhat of a silly metaphor, which was that cyber looting's already started. Uh, there's no question that other actors, whether it's nation-state actors from other countries, or if it's cyber crime groups that are masquerading as Russians, or just simply taking advantage of the distraction, or being able to say, well, you know, they're criminal number one, so if we do it, that's easily who's going to get blamed, and we can get away with it. That's happening, and that will continue to happen. And that kind of dovetails into my last point, which is that's what we can expect in the months and years to come. Unfortunately, I think things like ransomware are certainly far from gone. I think that uh, a lot of the folks that we saw that came and went are people that have made an immense amount of money. We're talking about billions of dollars in that uh, type of, of extortion and theft, and they've retired. And it doesn't mean they're not going to come back and do it again, learn from their mistakes, and do it even better. That's not to suggest that there's not new groups that have learned from these other groups to do it even more effectively. And that's not to suggest that this won't be endorsed by nation state actors with resources and capabilities if it if if it benefits in the old adage and the old proverbs from Sun Tzu, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, you know, if ransomware groups are benefiting the greater initiatives by some of these nation state actors, they're going to be endorsed and and uh, fostered. So we definitely have a lot ahead. Um, I think that um, there's the 
to summarize the nation state threat that seems to be ever growing. And the risk around that is extremely high that they will take certain actions. I don't necessarily know, nor would I want to comment definitively on whether they would really take some dramatic action like going after critical infrastructure and causing complete shutdowns of things here in the U.S. because I think that would truly warrant um, a response and possibly a military response because that could be considered truly an act of war. I think that the, the jury's still out in terms of the way the government perceives it, a cyber attack. To what degree would it really warrant a physical or kinetic attack or response? It's something that is uh, hotly debated. But then you introduce the whole hacktivist and uh, cyber militia proxy groups, if you will, that are coming into the mix that make it all the more murky to figure out who's doing what. That adds to the confusion. It adds to the um, friendly fire component, as I mentioned before. Um, so, and and really, the last piece, and I, this is sort of the bonus question I get a lot of times, which is, are we prepared? And uh, to kind of cap this off, the answer is no. Uh, the infrastructure that we have in place now already has what uh, we would call implants, uh, malware that has been put there a long time ago in many cases that has just laid dormant and is simply waiting to be turned on. Now, I'm not trying to suggest that we are the only ones that have been implanted. We certainly have done our own, imp own implanting in other countries for the same reason. So there is a sort of a proverbial standoff that exists here that if they flip switches on their side, we'll flip switches on ours and everyone will have access to everyone's uh, infrastructure. And so there's going to be a bit of a... Uh, stalemate or you know kind of high noon situation i think we may face at some point uh hopefully hopefully not too soon but uh it's all there so um once again not intending to create a bleak episode here but i think it was timely and critical uh for me to do this because i've had a lot of questions and i've been commenting in various pieces across everything i shared in this one podcast about what's been happening this is sort of the cohesive state of the union right now I certainly am happy to do another one if, if everyone is interested in it to give you an update maybe in the next several weeks, especially as things manifest and perhaps give some predictions on how we can manage. Um, you know, I, I don't want to think that I'm going to have to do an update where we talk about doomsday prepping, but there may, may, may come indeed where we sort of just prep for some of the more negative scenarios that could happen. Um, attacks like cyber attacks on critical infrastructure, they're going to coincide with events that are not in our control things like weather patterns that are um fortuitous for that kind of thing for example if we roll into a um uh you know a pretty warm spring and it puts a lot of pressure on the power grid somewhere that might be the ideal time to instigate an attack on something like that because then it gets overshadowed as oh it went down because of the pressure similar to what we saw in texas with that um arctic blast that came through and shut the power systems down it would be the ideal time to insert something that would actually facilitate it, but it'll get blamed on something like the weather. It's another Sun Tzuism right there where you're using uh, external environmental factors to your advantage in war. So you have to think of those things as well. So whenever you see some sort of extreme situation coming, prepare for it, no matter what it is, whether it's a weather system or what, because that will be utilized by actors uh, that have nefarious plans in mind. Stay safe in the meantime, and thank you for listening.